Well, we're in the book of Genesis again today, Genesis 20 and 21, as we work our way through this first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It's actually at the end of the book of Genesis that we find on the lips of Joseph a line that could have easily applied to many stories before in Genesis. It's Genesis 50, verse 20. Don't turn there, just listen to this. Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery some years before, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it, the very thing, for good. Throughout the book of Genesis, God proves himself to be faithful to fulfill His promises, despite human failure and unfaithfulness. Human unfaithfulness never thwarts his purposes. In fact, he often uses people's unfaithfulness to further his purposes, which just further proves and underscores His faithfulness alone. We see it in the Joseph story, much later in Genesis. We see it all over the Abraham stories. We've seen it in the very nature of the Abrahamic covenant as it was spelled out in Genesis 17 where God put Abraham to sleep while God himself and God alone walked between the two halves of the sacrifice signifying that he alone accomplishes and is accountable for that covenant. God will raise up a nation. God will bless the nations through Abraham, but not because of Abraham or anyone else. We see that in our passage today, Genesis 20 and 21. Last week, we looked at the dark story of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapters 18 and 19. It's a story of great sin and great destruction and then more sin. And yet, throughout it all, last week, in those chapters, Abraham stood out as a bright spot. He was a stellar example of godly concern and intercession for sinners and communion with God. But this week, in Genesis 20, Abraham takes a sudden nosedive. We might have thought that his days of fear and faithlessness and failure were behind him. But that would be naive, wouldn't it? We know from our own experience that there are ups and downs in life and in the Christian life. And it sometimes swings from an up to a down suddenly and with somewhat of a surprise. Today we'll be looking at two chapters which make up four different scenes. Chapter 20 takes up the first of these four sections that we'll look at today. 
So let's read chapter 20 to start, and then a little bit later on, we'll read chapter 21 together. Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart, and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours." So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone that you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In the first of these four sections that we'll look at today, there's much to see and learn. But I think most fundamentally we could call this section a recurring sin. Four S words will help us work our way through these four sections. This one is sin, a recurring sin. It's recurring because we've seen Abraham do this very sin before in Genesis. It was the second half of Genesis 12. It was right after God's call on Abram, his name then, to leave his home and his family. It was right after Abram's Risky obedience to leave family and familiarity and set out, not knowing where he was going. And then a famine hits. 
And in fear, Abraham goes down to Egypt to be in a better place for food. And it's there that he's also afraid for his life. He fears that some will try to kill him in order to take his pretty wife. And so he comes up with a plan to tell everyone that Sarah, his wife, is his sister. And that way if someone decides to take Sarah as their wife, fine, but they won't kill Abram. Well, that's what Pharaoh, king of Egypt, does. He takes Sarah for his wife, one of his wives. It was a very selfish move on Abraham's part. Very foolish. You probably remember the story. Abraham gets caught and then he escapes by the skin of his teeth. And fast forward now 25 years after that, and Abraham is still pulling that same prank. In fact, Genesis 20, verse 13, implies that Abraham and Sarah have had this game plan, quote, every place to which they come. It's a recurring sin for Abraham. Even if it only happened twice, it happened two times too many. And we, the readers, were shocked to read of it the first time in Genesis 12, but then we're even more shocked to read of another occasion of it here. Didn't Abraham learn? It didn't go well in Egypt. That was embarrassing. Yes, on the other side, he was safe and had greater possessions than before, but that's only because of God's grace and intervention. And so we're rightly more shocked to read of it again in chapter 20. And also more shocked because of what happened, let's say, back in chapter 18, which we saw last week. In chapter 18, those messengers from heaven showed up and not only repeated the promises of the covenant to Abraham and Sarah again, And not only specified that there would be another son to come, not Ishmael, another son that would be the son of promise. Not only that, they also specified that the promised son would be born about a year from now. Twice, they say, about a year from now, he's coming. And sometime within that year, Abraham finds himself in Abimelech's territory in in the land of the, of the uh, what are they called? The Philistines. I wanted to say the Pharisees, and I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> the Philistines. And he's once again afraid. And so he lies. Let's just pause here to remember that lying is really dumb. I mean, the Proverbs just point this out left and right. It's just... It's useless. It's senseless. Kids, you you should tuck this away as soon as possible. Lying is really not good. It never accomplishes what we hoped it would. It seems so innocent, so harmless, so unknowable by others. But then we're caught. And it's embarrassing, 
and it didn't accomplish what we hoped it would. And if we give the situation some analysis after all that, then we'll see that sin was never alone. Sin is, the sin of lying is never alone. There's always motivation, sinful motivation behind it, and we certainly see that with Abraham. Abraham's own explanation of the situation down in verse 11 shows that there are sins behind the sin of lying. I was afraid. Fear. Fear of man, not fear of God. Abraham assumes the worst about his new neighbors. You people are godless. I thought you'd kill me. That's why I did it. Abraham was supposed to be bringing blessing to the nations, but instead he's bringing curse. He's supposed to be banking on the promises of God, and instead he's not trusting God. He's taking matters into his own hands. He thinks that the promises are secure and safe and advanced only by his trickery. He's putting his wife at great risk. Not loving her, making her complicit, making her lie along with him. He even says to his wife, you have to do me this chesed is the Hebrew word, this covenant love. you got to do me this favor, this faithfulness. Lie everywhere you go. He's even jeopardizing the promises of God and letting his wife do this. Of course, he's not really jeopardizing the promises of God, but humanly speaking. Here we have a recurring sin. Friend, when you find yourself with a recurring sin, here's a good practice. Try to discover the sins that lie behind that sin. What a web we weave when at first we do deceive. Let's also not miss this application for us, that it's so easy to shake our heads about others' recurring sins and not our own, isn't it? It's so easy to identify Abram's recurring sins, plural, and just just marvel, and yet we do it all the time. We're so slow to see our own sin, so quick to justify our own. Well, similar to what happened in Egypt back in Genesis 12, we not only have Abraham's lie, but we have God's intervention and protection through it all here in chapter 20 as well. God comes to Abimelech, the king, in a dream and tells him everything that's happening. And God tells Abimelech, what he should do. He warns that it's a matter of life and death. And after this dream, and I'm sure after a night of tossing and turning after the dream, early in the morning, he confronts Abraham. Verses 9 and 10. Sadly, the pagan king is here more moral and principled than Abraham. Abimelech rightly interrogates Abraham. Abraham, verses 9 and 10. You see that? He says, what have you done? How have I sinned against you? 
You've done things that ought not to be done. What did you see that you did this? We've already talked about Abram's, Abraham's defense, if you want to call it that. He says to the king, well, it was only a half lie. And he subtly blames God. It's God who caused him to wander, verse 13, all this time. Fast forward to the outcome, verses 14 to 18, and God's grace is all over it. Not only does Abimelech let Abraham go with his wife, he gives him gifts, verse 14, sheep, oxen, servants, and a thousand pieces of silver, verse 16. That is a fortune in and of itself in those days. He gives him free passage, land, safety. And then Abraham prays for Abimelech for all of his moral failure here. Abraham is still the prophet in the land, a kind of priest between God and the nations. And so there's healing of the closed wombs in Abimelech's house at the end of the chapter. Through it all, we see God's faithfulness to overcome Abraham's unfaithfulness. And we're also subtly reminded at the very end that we're dealing with the God here who opens and closes wombs. So let's read on. Chapter 21 now. We'll read the whole chapter. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar and put it on her shoulder. Along with the child, he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. 
And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you. So you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. And Abraham sent seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol the commander of his army rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Well, we have three sections in this chapter, which will move a little quicker than that first section. The second one we could call a new son. Another S word, a new son. 25 years have passed since God began promising Abraham an offspring, a seed. And since that time, he's even gotten a new name, Abraham, which means father of a multitude. For 13 years now, he has had a son but one born of Hagar, Sarah's servant. The son's name is Ishmael. Now God has already made it clear that Ishmael would not be the promised son, but the promised son now, finally, after all these years, has come. At the ripe age of 100, proving that this was a miraculous pregnancy and birth, the son of promise is born. The waiting, at least for this son, is done. Despite Abraham's recent failures with Abimelech, God miraculously brings to pass just what he promised, just as he said. There's this repeated emphasis on what God had said. Notice verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. 
It was as he had promised. Verse 2, it was at the time that God had spoken to him. Every word of God proves true in the end. Even those things that take some time to come to pass. Don't forget why this son was so important. Go back and read the descriptions of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 to remember those parameters there that in the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, God would raise up a a great nation. He He would give them land and cause them to prosper. And those people, from those people, would come blessing to the whole world. And it's from that line of people that one day a Savior would come. His name is Jesus, Son of God, Son of Abraham, the seed, singular, with a capital S. That's where this is going. That's the big picture. That's why Isaac's important. Not because Isaac will get so much done or because so much blessing will come directly from him, but it is through him and his offspring and their offspring on and on until Jesus. Now back to the narrative here in Genesis 21. Notice Abraham circumcises his son on the eighth day just as God commanded This signals that Abraham is now back on track. He is now fully restored. He names his son Isaac, just as God told him to. The name Isaac means he laughs. And there's laughter all over the place here. Do you remember back in chapter 18, just about a year ago, Sarah overheard from angels this promise that she would bear a son in her ripe old age, and she laughed. Remember that? That laugh was in disbelief. It was more like a, yeah, right kind of laugh. But now at the birth of her son, Isaac, he laughs, she laughs. God has made laughter for me, verse 6. Everyone who hears this will laugh over me. This is good laugh. This is the laughter of joy. This is the laugh that says, who'd have thunk it? Who would have said this? Never mind that God would have said it and did say it and said it repeatedly. But otherwise, who would have said this? That a hundred-year-old woman would breastfeed a newborn baby of her own. So after all the waiting... And in spite of Abraham's failure in chapter 20, God fulfills his promises just as he says. And even more, God is faithful to restore Abraham who now fully obeys. And yet it's not all roses three years later. Life is full of ups and downs and ups and downs. And so thirdly, there is an inevitable split. An inevitable split starting in verse 8. You fast forward three years from the birth of Isaac. Three years old was the typical time for a child 
to be weaned in those days. That's where we get this time marker, three years. Fast forward three years from the birth of Isaac and the laughing in the home turns somewhat sinister, apparently so. At the weaning party for Isaac, the half-brother Ishmael, now 16 years old, is laughing at his little brother. And we wish we had more details than that, but the text doesn't give us any more details than that. It would seem innocent enough. What 16-year-old big brother hasn't laughed at his 3-year-old brother, whether harmlessly or in love or not so lovingly? And yet sometimes a laugh says a lot. Sometimes it's not so innocent. And leave it to a mom to be able to tell the difference. And apparently that's what happened one day at the weaning party. Ishmael's mocking laughter signaled to Sarah that this was an untenable situation in the home. The backstory is in Genesis 16. It was Sarah's idea, actually. When she couldn't get pregnant, she had the idea that Abraham would sleep with her servant, Hagar. And so he did, and she got pregnant, and she bore a son, Ishmael. Ishmael would not be the son of promise because God's promise would be accomplished miraculously with his provision, his doing, not not through scheming, not through manipulation, not through sin. And yet, nevertheless, Ishmael's there. And he is Abraham's son. And Abraham loved Ishmael. It was his flesh and blood. And yet, you, you can imagine, you don't have to imagine very long how awkward the situation would be. One father, two kids, two moms all under one roof until Sarah said, no more. It might come across as selfish and heartless on Sarah's part, insisting that Hagar and Ishmael be sent away. The passage actually doesn't tell us how to view her motives, only that God agrees with the conclusion. And God tells Abraham, do what she says. This time, you're supposed to listen to the wife God's given you. It's a sad situation. It's ugly. It was inevitable. Sin has consequences. Long-term consequences, sometimes. Even when there is forgiveness and restoration, sometimes consequences of sin still remain and are still painful, and still affect other people. It was a no-win situation. If Ishmael had remained in the home, he may have continued jockeying for power, or even killing his little brother, like Cain did to Abel, out of jealousy. Paul, in the New Testament book of Galatians uses our story 
as an illustration. I won't read it for you. You can read it later on your own. You can read Galatians 4, verse 22, to about, well, starting, it finishes maybe about chapter 5, uh, at the end of chapter 4 at least. Read it later, and you'll see this. You'll find Paul contrasting two systems of salvation that we have. People try to work their way to God, or they try to just rest and receive the grace of God. Those are the two systems Paul's contrasting in Galatians chapter 4. And he uses the story of these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, again, as an illustration. Ishmael represents working, striving, conniving. And Isaac represents promise and grace and God providing. And so Paul is saying there in Galatians, you need to cast out. Like, like, like Hagar was cast out, you need to cast out any reliance upon your own works to get right with God. You need to make a split with trusting in your own righteousness. Back to Genesis 21, after Hagar and Ishmael were sent packing, the story gets worse before it gets better. She finds herself in the desert, alone, without water, with death on the horizon. It's unbearable to read almost. She distances herself from her son so as to not watch him die. She lifts up her voice and weeps, and that's when God steps in. Verse 17 and following, he hears the cry of the boy. He gives them a well to drink from. God promises to be with the boy. And God says, from this boy will come nations and peoples. And yet, despite all this kindness from God, all this nearness of God, all this protection and provision from God, there are hints at the end of this section that apparently Hagar and Ishmael don't have the saving, redeeming effects of God upon, upon their lives. In other words, they're this close to God, they hear from God, and they don't believe God. You see the last couple of verses of this section, verse 20 and 21. He lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness, and his mom took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Not from among the descendants of Abraham. Not close to Abraham. No, he's on the run. He's wherever he wants to be. He's got a wife from Egypt. The proximity to Abraham and his family the proximity to the God of Abraham and his family has not had a redeeming effect on this mom and her son. And yet here we see God's grace, in spite of the untenable, bitterly sad situation with Hagar and Ishmael, which originated from, from Sarah's doubt and sin, in Abraham's sin in taking matters into his own hands. God is faithful through it all. Which leads, fourthly, to a significant settlement. 
at the end. Verse 22 and following, there's a settlement between Abraham and Abimelech. Abimelech comes back. Remember him from chapter 20? Our passage begins and ends with Abimelech. In chapter 20, Abimelech was the occasion for Abraham to fear and to fib and to falter. And now at the end of chapter 21, Abimelech is back and Abraham this time proves firm and faithful by God's grace, fully restored. Abimelech recognizes God's hand upon Abraham and his descendants and asks for a covenant, a deal. Be good to me, I'll be good to you. Just his approach and what he's asking for is remarkable in and of itself. In this situation, Abimelech is the lesser and Abraham is the greater. They enter into agreement for generations to come. The agreement assumes Abraham's ongoing greatness in that land for generations to come. Abraham's doing the very thing here that God called him to be and to do, to bless those who bless you, to be a blessing to the nations. However, there is this matter of the well to first clear up. Verse 25 Abimelech's men have seized a well that Abraham and his men dug. And so Abraham confronts Abimelech. He reproves him, verse 25. And Abimelech, mirroring, mirroring Abraham's response when being confronted by Abimelech in the last chapter, Abimelech says, I don't know who did it. You didn't tell me about it. I haven't heard of anything about it until today, which is not a great response. He's, he's a sniveling king. But now the bigger man, Abraham, formalizes the covenant, giving him seven lambs. They are witnesses to the covenant. On this basis, they swear an oath, they make a covenant. What a restoration of Father Abraham. In chapter 20, he was weak, afraid. When confronted, he made excuses, and he was sent packing, even with greater wealth. But in chapter 21, he is strong, and God is with him, and he confronts, and he makes covenant. He's a leader among leaders. And then he plants a tree, verse 33 and calls on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He worships there in Philistine land. Now keep in mind, there are still ups and downs ahead in the story of Abraham. The well at Beersheba is a beautiful high point, and it's the end of our passage for this week, but it is far from the end of the story for Abraham. In fact, even here, he's called a sojourner, reminding us he's not in the promised land yet. It's not his yet. The passage began, chapter 20, began with him sojourning, traveling, journeying. It ends with him sojourning for many years in Philistine land. Hebrews 11 speaks of this 
when it tells us that Abraham was a model for us who are also looking for a city to come. We're exiles and strangers in this world as Christians waiting for a heavenly city. And Abraham prefigured that. He was a foreshadow of that. He showed us how to do that. And now Father Abraham is home, truly home, in a heavenly home. God was faithful through it all. God is faithful through the ups and downs of Abraham's sojourning life. God is faithful in the ups and downs of your life. And God's faithfulness is shown despite Abraham's unfaithfulness. And it is shown, well, not even because of Abraham's occasional faithfulness. God is faithful through and through, from top to bottom, from beginning to end. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. It was true for Joseph, true for Abraham. It's true for you if you're a Christian today. What others might intend for evil, what you sometimes intend for evil, God can use it for good. And the supreme example of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Where men meant the most evil that has ever been conceived on the innocent, righteous Son of God. Crucifying Him to the cross. They meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. For our good. That's what Leah read to us about from Romans 5 earlier. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus can do and did do what Abraham could never do, not even on his best day. Jesus can do and does do and did do what Isaac would never do. Jesus can do and has done what seven ewe lambs could never do. He died in our place for our sins to reconcile us to God. In this we rejoice. Do you believe that? Have you come to embrace that? It's your only hope. There are ups and downs in life. And I pray that the downs in this life point you to Jesus, the perfect Savior, Son of God and Son of Abraham. As we'll sing in just a minute, listen to these words. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. Let's believe it today. And let's walk in light of it. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for grace. We thank you, Lord, for the covenant that you have made with us in Jesus our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you walk with us. You see us through, and you will lead us home. 
as strangers and exiles on the earth, Lord, we indeed are seeking a heavenly homeland, and one day we shall be there. See us through, Lord, and when we sin, Lord, remind us that your grace is greater than all our sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.